Elvis Presley. Everybody here knows Elvis, correct? You, know, you don't know him personally. You know who he was. Anybody here not know who Elvis Presley was? Elvis Presley was probably uh, in the 60s and 70s, maybe even into the 80s, the most well-known person possibly in the world, along with uh, Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Uh, he was so famous. He was so well uh, received by people, folks, 25 years after his death. He died in 77. In 2002, he, uh, they released his top hits of all times. 25 years after this guy was dead, he was the bestseller for three weeks. That's how uh, phenomenal he was. Famous, well-known. He had girlfriends like every guy dreams of. I mean, girlfriends out, the, uh, out his ears. Famous, money. But after he died, his wife, Priscilla, ex-wife, said... Elvis never found his purpose. Can you imagine that? That he always felt like that he did not find what God put him on earth for. We had his uh, stepbrother here a few years ago who preached. He told me, he told us, he believed Elvis had become a Christian in his life. But Priscilla said he wondered, was he supposed to be preaching? Was he supposed to be a missionary? Was he supposed to be serving people? And she felt like, especially toward the end of his life, he used alcohol, drugs, and even continuous performance as a way of masking the fact that he had missed his purpose. Isn't that phenomenally sad? Folks, I want to tell you something exciting. God has a vision and dreams for your life and my life that we can find. We began a few weeks ago looking in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning at that fact. We looked at a couple of facts the last two weeks. One, that God does have a vision. Our visions, plural, dreams for your life. We looked last week at that if you're the right kind of person and you seek God, that you can find those dreams and those visions. And today, I want us to look at some things that you and I, some ingredients that we have to put in the mix in our life if we want to see those visions and those dreams happen. By the way, we're going to look at three words, and these words are applicable to any part of your life. If you want to be effective, these things are crucial, very, very important. The first word is the word favor, the word favor. And the biblical concept of favor is very similar to the English concept. It means that someone or something is favorable towards us or that we receive blessings or benefits from someone or something. And folks, I want to tell you, as Nehemiah is going to show us, Success in our lives, success in our families, success in our businesses, uh, success in seeking God for your career or for uh, shifting gears in your career and going a different route, building your walls that God is going to put in your life like Nehemiah had walls to build. It is going to depend on you and I having certain types of favor in our lives. Number one is the favor of God, the favor of God. A little background, a little refresher if you've been here. Nehemiah is a Jewish man, and he's living about 600, 640 years before Jesus Christ did. The Jewish people, he's a Jewish man, they are, are really kind of subjects of the, the, the national dominating power of that era, Persia. And Nehemiah works for the Persian king, King Artaxerxes, and he... 
uh, is a top eight of his. He's his wine taster, his wine provider. He picked out the wines. We know he couldn't be a redneck because rednecks, I've mentioned a few weeks ago, we can't pronounce wine, so you, you couldn't be a wine picker-outer. I mean, what would the redneck say? Well, that red bottle looks good. Or the Boone's Farm cherry looks good. Uh, you know, we can't pronounce it. We don't know those things. But so Nehemiah wasn't a redneck. That's an established biblical fact. But he's working for this king, and he finds out about his homeland of Judah. He finds out about their capital city, Jerusalem, that it's in bad shape. The people are depressed. They're unfulfilled. They're sad. They're ineffective. And that the city walls have been destroyed, and they have been down now for a century, almost a century and a half, 140 years. City walls were the, the pride. They were the protection. They were a key to a city and a state being able to live and, and to maneuver effectively. And God lays on Nehemiah, Nehemiah, I want you, things been down 140 years. You're a servant, a top servant, but a servant to the king. I want you somehow to get out of your job, to go back to Jerusalem, to a place that's in utter de- their confusion, it's, it's destitute. I want you to go and do something that it's been impossible for anybody to do for 140 years. Nehemiah gets on the case with God, and in two months, the walls are back up. Phenomenal, isn't it? How'd they do it? Number one, he had that favor with God. He had God's blessings in God's hand on him. In chapter 1, verse 11, the very last verse... Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer this, your servant, of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. God, give your servant success. Success meant there to be profitable. Now, folks, we, we have been a little bit ruined because you watch TV and you hear some preacher in a $4,000 suit with Rolexes on each wrist and diamond rings on each finger saying, if you will send me $1,000, you will get a Mercedes tomorrow. And you know what? That just isn't true. I can prove it to you. Send me $1,000 tomorrow, and I bet you won't get a Mercedes. I just bet you won't. So we have been a little bit burned, and we shy away from this. But, folks, you and I should pray for God to profit us, to give us success. Now, not necessarily the material, you know, the health and the wealth. That wasn't what Nehemiah was saying. He was saying, God, I need your blessings and your favor and your power to be with me. Give me success in granting me favor with this man, the king. Favor there, it meant sympathy. Not sympathy like, oh, I feel so sorry for you. But like that, that a person is inclined to someone and that they are sensitive to them and their needs. He said, God, give me this with the king. Now jump over to chapter 2, verse 18. After Nehemiah gets into Jerusalem, listen to what he tells the people there. I told them about the gracious hand of my God being upon me. And, and how God and the king had blessed me and had given me their favor. Listen, I wonder how many of us pray daily, God, give me your favor. God, my family needs your blessings. My marriage needs your favor. God, my wife needs a lot of correcting, but she needs your favor. I wasn't speaking to my wife. I was speaking to you guys' wives out there. 
God, our church needs your favor. God, my business needs your favor. God, that dream that I'm thinking about, that I'm praying about, that wall that you're calling me to build, God, it's not going to happen without your blessing. Listen, some of us are dreaming so small, we don't need God to see the dream happen. God wants to push you out where you've got to depend on Him and you need His favor. Pray and ask for God's favor and blessings in your life. Here's the second part of this. We need the favor of other people. We need the favor of other people. Nehemiah asked for favor from God, but again, look in verse 11. He says, give me success today by granting me favor in the presence of this man. God, may the king be sympathetic and sensitive to me. God, may his ear be inclined to hear me and to listen to what I have to say. I wonder how many of us pray this on a regular basis. Here's what we do. God told me to do it, so you better get out of my way. I'm going to do it. And if Nehemiah would have done that with the king, he would have found himself holding his head like this. He would have been his own pumpkin for Halloween. That that wasn't going to work. It's not going to work for most of us. He needed favor with God, and he didn't need to run over other people and saying, God told me, God told me, get out of my way. He needed other people's blessings and favor too. Now, you look in chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. In the month of Nisan... In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. It's interesting. Apparently what this guy had to do is he would pick out the wine. Remember, he's not a redneck because he can pronounce it and he knows what the good wines are. And he picks out a wine and he would bring it before the king and to prove that at least he had not poisoned the king or he wouldn't profit from the king's death, he would pour some in his hand and then he would drink it. They'd wa- I guess they'd watch him for a few minutes. Maybe somebody's job. You watch the, the, the wine bearer for a minute, and if he's still breathing, then we'll take a drink. So he brings the wine to the king, and it says in verse 2, So the king asked me, Why does your face look sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. He says, I was very much afraid. We'll see that in a moment. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, he'd been praying for several months. But it's interesting, on the spot, he was ready to say, God, hold on. God, I really need your help here. Then I answered the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in his sight, Let him send me to the city in Judah, Jerusalem, where my fathers are buried, so I can rebuild it. Guys, this was not going to happen without the king's blessings and approval. Just wasn't going to happen. Nehemiah was wise enough and mature enough to know that. He didn't go in and tell the king, here, king, let me tell you all the areas you're wrong and how you need to get it right, and then we'll do it my way. Didn't do that. He said, God, I need your hand in favor on me. And God, make the king sympathetic and understanding to me. How many of us pray that? Here's a prayer you young people need to pray every Friday and Saturday night before you ask for anything. God, make my parents favorable to me. I'm halfway kidding, but I'm halfway not. How are things at work? 
How are things with opportunities you're trying to dive off into? How often do we say, God, give me favor with that person over me? Give me favor and your blessing in your hand with the people I'm going to be involved with. Sometimes we might think of favor as being a negative thing because when, when a person is favored in our world, that means that they're shown partiality, and that's always good if it's shown towards you. It's bad if it's shown towards someone else and not you. But this is a good word. When someone is favorable and sensitive to you, guys, to be successful in the right ways, it's always good to ask God to bring success to you. You're not going to build the walls God wants you to build and do the things God wants you to do without His favor and the favor of others. Now, here's a third thing that brings it together. You and I have to be favorable. We have to be blessable. Okay, this isn't a magic wand. God, give me favor with you. God, give me favor with others. Poof. I can live and do life any way I want to and expect everybody to bless me. That's not going to happen. Nehemiah held a top position for the king, which means that the king knew he was loyal. The king knew he could trust him. He was a hard worker. He was diligent. He was godly. He was worth being favorable to. Listen, God blesses those who are blessable. God, give me favor and I live like I want to. God's not going to do that. You're a jerk to the leaders and the people in your life, and then you pray for favor. God's saying, straighten yourself out, and then I will. You see, our job is to pray for favor and to be favorable. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, great verse about the early church, praising God, listen, and enjoying the favor of all the people. These were likable, attractive people. Attractive, I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. Okay, let me give you an example. Now, I've told him I was going to use them. I didn't tell him what, but Allie, raise your hand. Sam, raise your hand. Where's Sam? Okay. Sam, let's just say, hypothetically, you decide you want to ask Allie out on a date, okay? I'm going to give you some dating advice here. First of all, you do what? Men, you pray for God's favor, correct? God, give me favor. And then, Sam, you pray, give me favor with Allie. Now, see, I would cheat, though. I would always ask their friends, will they go out with me? That way I never am hanging it out there taking any risk. But that's a different story. So you're, you're praying for favor from God in her, okay, Sam? You follow me? Now you've got to be favorable, the day you get ready to ask her out, make sure you've brushed your teeth that day. If you've got green beans in your teeth, hey, most of the time that's not going to work. Probably. I don't know. Maybe Allie likes green beans. Maybe that'd be cool. I, don't, I doubt it, though. I doubt it, though. Put on your, go to your father's cologne cabinet. Get out his high karate and put it on. <laughs> Comb your hair. Guys, y'all understand what I'm saying, don't you? If you want to go out with a pretty girl, you've got to be favorable to them, right? See, God helps those who help themselves. That's true in dating, but it's true in every part of life. You and I have to do our very best as we're praying for God to do His part. Make sense? Okay, so you want to build those walls. You want to do great things in your life. Seek the favor of God. Seek the favor of others and be favorable yourself. Now, here's the next word, and it's an ugly word. It's an ugly word, and that's the word sacrifice. 
Sacrifice. I like sacrifice when it involves something that Wayne has to do for me. It's not as fun when it's something I have to do. How did Nehemiah, how did Nehemiah get a vision from God and by the time they started working, when less than two months, they got a wall rebuilt that had sat down for 140 years. He had the favor of God and others, but he was also willing to sacrifice to make it happen. In chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of this little book, it says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalah, in the month of Keslava, in the 20th year, was while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, okay, that may not mean much to us, but let me tell you, as the cupbearer, you had a cupcake job. You had a great job. The citadel of Susa was the Persian king's winter palace, which implies he had other palaces. So if you were a top aide for the king, guys, you get to drink the best drinks, you get to eat the best foods, they're going to always make sure that you're dressed nice, you're going to live in the palace, you're going to travel with the king, you have got it absolutely made, okay? But his vision from God is going to require him to give up the palace, to give up the, the, the sure food, to give up living in, basically in luxury, to go live in a tent in a place he's probably never lived before amongst people he's never been around before. Now, if that's not difficult enough, you look in, in verse 10 about the people, some of the people he was going to encounter. When Sambalah the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, about Nehemiah coming to rebuild the wall, they were super excited and said, what can we do to help? No, it says they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now go down to verse 19. But when Sambalah the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab, sounds like a professional wrestler, doesn't it? Heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? Okay, God gives him a vision. The vision involves going and doing something great. Boom. As soon as he gets there, before he even gets started, he has people who we're going to see later who are in power positions, who are pseudo-spiritual, who are attacking him and slandering him and going to ridicule him and going to hammer and going to hammer and going to hammer. I wonder if there were not nights that Nehemiah laid in his tent going, what in the world did I get myself into? But you know what? He was willing to sacrifice the ease of the palace. He was willing to sacrifice the cushy life. He was willing. And listen, you work close for the king. People didn't mess with you. If they did, they probably got. But now when he's a long way off, he's vulnerable to all that. You see, what Nehemiah did that was so great, it's easy for us to forget how much he had to sacrifice. And I want to tell us this morning, nothing great's going to happen in our lives without sacrifice. 
Folks, if we want to get something we've never gotten, we're probably going to have to do some things we've never done. I mean, I think most of us can look and go, I would like for this to happen in my life, and I would like this to happen, and I would like to do this. The problem is we're just not willing to sacrifice and do the hard work to get it done. There's, a, there's no definition, many of you have heard of insanity, that insanity is doing the same things over and over and expecting a different result. Did you get that? It's doing the same things over and over and thinking things are going to come out differently. They're not. And for us to be successful as a church or in your family or with your health or in academics or in your career or making a career move or completely radically changing your life to follow God's dream is just going to cause you sacrifice. It's going to cost you. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the philosopher, writer, said, nothing great is ever achieved without enthusiasm. And that's true, but nothing great is ever achieved without sacrifice. You say, I want this to happen, I want this to happen. That's wonderful, but it will not happen if you and I are not willing to pay a price to see it happen. Sacrifice. And the third word this morning is the word faith. The word faith. Nehemiah had the favor of God, the favor of others. He was a favorable person who was willing to do the hard work to see the goals accomplished. Listen, I think the sacrifice and I think the faith thing, this is where most of us get lost. This is where most of us spend the rest of our lives going, what if or what could have been. Okay, Nehemiah, and he goes before the king. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2 again. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of king with funny name, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine, I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Listen, I was very much afraid. But I told him, king, here's why I'm sad. My people are broken. The city's in shambles. And my heart's breaking for this. Why was Nehemiah scared? Folks, the king in this day held the power of life and death. And it was absolutely forbidden that you approach the king with your problems. In fact, when you went before the king, you were supposed to be chipper. You didn't come in the king, oh, I'm to pray. You didn't do that. And again, you could die for that. They have actually found old Persian art dated back to Nehemiah's era that showed servants coming into the presence of the king covering their mouth like this. And, and they, they, the inscriptions read, well, this is funny why they did that, so that they would not offend the king by the foulness of their breath. Now, I thought about that this week as I was studying and studying for you and praying you know, that was the day before scope, Listerine, close-up toothpaste, and good dentist care. Halitosis probably ran rampant. Would you agree? And you were not allowed to offend the king by your bad breath. That's probably a good rule, isn't it? So you walked into the king. I mean, even your breath could get you in trouble with the king. 
So Nehemiah was scared. Now here's something else. You go back to the book of Ezra, the next book behind Nehemiah, they had already in recent years tried to rebuild the wall and this very king had told them no, no, it's not going to happen. It could also be seen as an act of treason that he's wanting to go back and establish a kingdom against Persia. There's a lot of things that brought some fear and trembling to him. But he went on and he did it anyway. And his task, once the king says he can do it, that's great. But now he's facing something that has not been successful for over a century where there's going to be a lot of opposition. It's going to be very hard and it's going to be very difficult. But he steps out and he does it anyway. Let me tell you, you and I have got to get in our lives, in the life of our church, the life of our family, the life of our businesses, where we are willing to bring the anchor in and push off and go out to sea. You see, most of us aren't willing to sacrifice or we do not have the faith to say, God is leading me to do it, and I'm going to do it. Now, faith's not being stupid. Faith's not climbing up the top of the high dive at night and saying, I'm going to jump and believe there's water in the pool. That's not faith. That's stupidity. Faith is saying, God's leading me to do it. It doesn't make sense. It's going to be hard. People are against me, and they're going to be against me, but God's leading me to do it. That's what Faith is, and you and I are never going to accomplish much if we're not willing to get out of our comfort zone, sacrifice some, and step out and trust God. How many of you have ever seen the trapeze artist at the circus? That's Jeremy Telford and Zach Yates. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be either one of those, but the one I wouldn't want to be the most is the one midair. Would you agree? I mean, at least the guy hanging upside down is hanging on something. I heard trapeze artists interviewed once, and they were explaining what it takes to be a trapeze artist. Of course, you have to buy tights and, you know, and all that. But they, they talked about the training. It takes upper body strength. You practice. You, you have to have you know, certain skill sets. But here's what they ultimately said. Sooner or later, you've got to be willing to let go. You climb up there, you're the the one in midair, and you're swinging. If you're going to be a trapeze artist, at some point, you've got to be willing to let go of the bar and trust that that person's going to catch you and doesn't have greasy hands. The last thing you want your catcher to do is eat chicken before you go up. You willing to let go? You see, we want to control. We want to figure it all out. We, and, and planning and being organized is great. Nehemiah was. But at some point, young people, you're, you get a hold of this, you can change your world. Us older people, if we get a hold of this, we can too. But it's going to take trusting God enough to step out and let go. Fred Smith is the founder and the CEO of Federal Express. His story is a very interesting story. When he was in college at Yale, he had this idea for Federal Express. 
He wrote a paper in a business class, and this is funny, and the professor gave him a C and told him, Fred, that concept will never work. (laughs) I bet Fred laughs at that professor every time he goes to the bank. But Fred Smith had a vision of something grand. Other people told him it wouldn't work, it couldn't be successful. He had a vision. And I want to tell you, it cost him a lot. He had to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. In fact, in the early days of Federal Express, they would have to fly their planes into West Memphis, Arkansas, and hide them to keep the bill collectors from from getting them from them. Faith, it took huge faith. He'd been told by top experts that it wouldn't work, but he, he believed in it. I don't know his relationship with God, but certainly he had favor with other people. He was willing to sacrifice. He had faith. Now, he owns a company that, last time I saw, employed over 100,000 people and is worth billions of dollars. And I don't know if that's in your future or my future, but I know this. God has walls he wants us to build. He has dreams for us. If we're willing to do the things that Fred Smith and, more importantly, that Nehemiah are willing to do, Let's pray. Christian, I would ask you this morning, what's God laying on your heart? Where do you need favor? Where do you need sacrifice? Are you willing to step out in faith? This morning, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you to do the greatest, most important thing you can do to give your life to Christ this morning. Right where you're seated, would you just pray with me and say, Jesus, I want to turn from my sins. I believe you're the Son of God who died and who arose for me. And I'm asking you now to come into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. Let me have your attention just for a moment. Just a second, we're going to ask you to stand and and just to bow your heads as the music's playing and to respond to what God said to you today. God has dreams and visions for us if we'll be and do the right things. It begins with your relationship with Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, would you come and give your life to Christ today? We'll be down here to help you. Maybe you'd like to join our church family. We would love for you to do that. One way you can do that is by coming in a moment, letting one of these ministers help you. Christian, maybe today God has spoken to your heart. And you know there's some hard decisions you need to make. But I want to challenge you to do whatever God's leading you to do. To live the life God wants you to live. Let's stand. Just bow your heads if you would. And as God leads you, respond to Him today.